friends, welcome back to the show. This is episode number 500. Let me say that again. Episode 500. This is a big one. October of 2013, I put out my very first episode, and now eight and a half years later, we're at episode 500. So what I did is I put together 12 clips from over these eight and a half years that, uh, you know, just speak to something about um, the, the podcast and what it's meant to me. And I've been spending a couple of days putting this together. There's a longtime listener, Aaron, big shout out to you. Thank you for uh, being one of the people who suggested this to me. You probably, I think we're one of the first. And um, so I've been spending a few days kind of going through a few clips that stood out to me. And like during this process, I just became like flooded with gratitude and appreciation for what I've been able to be a part of, conversations I've been able to be a part of, friendships I've developed, people I've gotten to know. And, you know, eight and a half years ago, I was just excited to have an opportunity to talk to people who were helping me make sense of a faith who, to be honest, at the time, it, it wasn't working out so good for me. And so I really needed some voices to help, like to be the guide to help me make sense of faith. And over these eight and a half years, it, it's been life-giving to me. Uh, some of the relationships and friendships I've developed uh, through the podcast have been just beautiful sources of like light and love and encouragement to me. And I'm forever grateful for it. And, you know, over the last couple of years, it's, uh, it's easy to kind of get caught up in the way that, um, you know, you have to do this kind of stuff and publishing and, you know, branding and marketing, all that stuff that kind of feels pretty gross at this point to talk about, uh, because the sad thing about publishing these days is, uh, you know, because people aren't buying books as much, publishers have left margin, and so they're having to make a little bit more conservative effort to um, invest in things that are sure things. And so the bigger questions is like, uh, can you sell your book on your own with your own platform? And, uh, you know, it obviously was very beneficial to have the podcast, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when I was shopping for uh, that first book deal. And uh, so it, it's a weird thing, and I'm grateful for the the books that I've been able to write partly because of the podcast. Um, but it uh, along the way, it's easy to kind of get caught up in that game because you have to play the game to do the publishing and do some other stuff. Um, and something happened over the last couple of days as I was going through and listening to a lot of these old interviews. It just kind of like reignited some of the, like the joy, uh, as scripture talks about the joy of my salvation, uh, like the joy of like the beginning of this thing when it all started. And uh, I, I'm really excited to share some of these uh, episodes with you. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, you'll hear uh, is, I don't think I'm even going to get on this one, but uh, the ability to like savor gratitude. Actually, we'll talk about that one in this episode. Um I think that's one of the things that's really developed over the years. It's been a major theme that I think has kind of come through. And one of the things I'm just most grateful for is just y'all listen to this, having people who care enough to uh, like support the show because um, like to get people to listen uh, is kind of important so I can get guests. And uh, so it's just been a great blessing you all and the emails and the participation and the comments and the, you know, sharing and all the stuff that you guys do. So I'm just super, super grateful for y'all. And just, I want to give out just a real heartfelt thank you. And so we're going to kind of get a little nostalgic. We're going to go a little trip down memory lane. And I said, I got 12 clips. And the problem with 12 clips is, um, you know, I've got too much content to put this out as one episode. And I, I, 
unless it's going to be like a two-hour episode, and I don't think anyone uh, wants to do that because my name isn't Joe Rogan. So uh, I think I'm going to just cut this up into two podcasts, and so this will be the part one of the special 500th anniversary episode, and then part two will be episode 501. But I've got a lot of episode, a lot of uh, clips I want to play, and then I want to talk a little bit about what they mean to me. And so, um, you know, it might be a little bit uh, self-indulgent here, but uh, I have a podcast that's named after me. So of course I'm going to talk about myself. That's just kind of what, what, what we do, <laughs> what happens here. Um, but without, uh, further ado, this is going to be the first, I think I'm going to get to one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to try to get through six of these, uh, on this first episode and then we'll do another six, the second one. And so we're going to start off actually with our very first podcast episode, which was October of 2013, eight and a half years ago, 500 episodes ago. Um, just the very first one. And I, I put this out. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, are you going to hear me say good evening? Like, like everyone has to listen at night. Why would I do that? I don't know. Uh, but I recorded on a Sunday night and the very first episode is with our friend, Sean Palmer. And I want you to also to hear the, uh, the old school intro, uh, just because that makes me happy. So here's the first of many clips and I'm going to come back in between each clip and kind of talk a little bit about them. So here we go. Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Good evening. Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. This is a Sunday evening, and we are going to be talking tonight about the intersection of physical wellness and spiritual wellness. And in light of this topic, I have brought in one of my friends, Sean Palmer, who is joining us today by the magic of Skype. So welcome, Sean, to Newsworthy Woo-hoo! with Norsworthy. The magic of Skype. It's magical, That's, isn't it? it? If Skype is magical, then we're free and clear because we don't have to do anything for the next 25 minutes. People will already be experiencing something magical just through Skype. I, I think you might be onto something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not only is the audio quality substantially worse on that one, but what is exactly the same is eight and a half years ago, our friend Sean Palmer was just as cantankerous and uh, curmudgeon-y back then as he was right now. You'd think that that would have been like a like a, a late onset kind of thing, but no, he's been consistent in character since since the beginning. Um, <laughs> uh, the get ready for some awesome, I, some of you might've heard the story before, but I had a friend from uh, the church that we were part of outside of Dallas in Denton, Texas named Jennifer Green and her and her husband, Tommy were, uh, just wonderful people. They were just a core family that I, uh, was so grateful, uh, to, to get to know them, uh, pretty well during that time. And Jen does professional voiceover work. And so I reached out to her and I said, Hey, I need kind of an intro thing for a podcast. And so I'm like, uh, telling her what I want. And so I say, yeah, g- get ready for some awesome. And her response to me, I- I'm pretty sure it was, you know, look, when, when I don't have something that I just like absolutely love, I just kind of just make it real simple and plain, which was like the nicest way to say, don't, why, why are you making me say, get ready for some awesome? And, uh, but I stuck with it. And, uh, Jen, uh, is, uh, just another great person that I'm grateful that uh, her voice is on the podcast uh just an old friend and uh yeah and so sean palmer (laughs) uh talking about fitness that's pretty funny Uh, i don't know why you'd start a podcast and think you know what we want to talk about first we want to talk about fitness because everyone wants to hear um about why they need to uh exercise more no one i don't know whatever um 
Uh, nevertheless, uh, that was the first podcast. And I remember looking like weeks after I posted, I didn't know you could do this, but you could actually see how many people listened. And I, I clicked on it uh, like weeks after I posted it. And I was like, wow, like people actually listen to this. Why? Like, this is crazy. Um, and so that was very exciting. Now, uh, this next one I'm going to play is one that uh, I think is probably one of the three, five most downloaded episodes um, uh, that we ever did. And it's a podcast with uh, actually Richard Beck, who was part of the impetus for the podcast. I remember reading his book, The Authenticity of Faith, which is just a really great technical nerdy book um, about faith. And obviously he's a psychologist. And so there's the intersection of psychology and theology, which he does so brilliantly. And so very excited. He's on the podcast. And actually it was uh, May of 2015, this is two years after the podcast started. He and I are going out to Pepperdine, which I'm literally doing tomorrow morning. And uh, Jana, his wife, was with us. And we drove uh, about an hour south of LAX. And we went to Laguna Beach where got to talk with Rob Bell. And this is just Rob like at the top of his game, just A-plus Rob Bell. Um, the first podcast with Rob Bell actually was just like this really pivotal moment. And this is not the first one with Rob. Uh the one before was uh, with he and Chris and they had a book called The Zimzum of Love. And I still remember being in my driveway when the UPS man delivered this special book from Harper One, which uh, has been a, a great friend and resource to the podcast. Uh, last episode, um, Sonia Curry was another Harper One uh, author, many other Harper One authors that we've had on the podcast since then. But uh, uh what happened was Zach Lind, who is the drummer for the band uh, Jimmy Eat World, who's been on the podcast a few times, who actually is a Richard Beck fan. Uh, I, I text or no, no, I uh, yeah, I think I texted uh, Zach and I was like, "Hey, Rob's got this book, Zimzum of Love, that's coming out. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Um, can you can you uh, like hook me up?" And so he connected me with Harper One people uh, through Rob, and then uh, I reached back out to him maybe two years later, a year later, whenever, and I said, "Hey, I'm going to be in L.A. Uh, do you do you think that maybe?" Rob would be up to talking to me and Richard. And he, uh, this is the funniest thing ever. He email introduces uh, me and Rob. And uh, like, I literally was like cheesing so much. Like I was just like so nervous. I reached out to Zach and I was like, hey, do you think I can directly respond to Rob on email? Like I literally did that. And for as much as I make fun of Stormont for calling N.T. Wright brother Tom, like I definitely had my own moment um, when I was emailing Rob uh, like the first time. Because when I was in grad school, like Rob was one of the first guys who was like taking like substantive theological engagement into the pulpit. And so I was just always just really um, like appreciative for what he was doing because I saw a lot of people who were preaching and connecting to a lot of people that – you know, it didn't seem like uh, the theological training that I had was something that was a priority in their preparation for what they were doing. And so to see Rob, like early Rob at Mars Hill, doing that kind of stuff was like deeply impactful for me. And so to get uh, to have this conversation where, you know, Rob's at a different stage of his life, what, this clip I'm going to show you or, or play for you, uh, you hear that, you know, Rob has weathered some storms. Uh, he's on the other side of being uh, a, a pastor and he just... Um, like just had a lot of brilliant wisdom to say here. Uh, I, I thought about being so indulgent to play the clip, uh, which was like just 10 minutes before this one where Rob says that the reason he started the Robcast was of, was because of my first interview with him uh, talking about Zimzum with he and Kristen. But like, I feel like that'd be really arrogant to talk about that on a podcast. And I obviously would never do something like that. So um, I didn't play that, but here is uh, a clip from one of the most special conversations uh, that I got to have on the podcast. This is 2015. 
Richard Beck, Rob Bell, Laguna well, Beach. Well, then why is the story so doing the thing? So I understand, like, if you fail to pay your taxes, you will have a problem. So it's probably at some layer, at some level, failure is fine. But in terms of you doing your work in the world, I just don't, I just, it's not something that crosses my mind. Is that like, you a, could make it cruciform too. I mean, if God's ultimate incarnation is ostensibly a failure. Exactly. He, yeah. You it, know, I mean, the whole thing, we all might get killed. So I just, I just had enough things happen to me that where it all did fall apart and people didn't like me and people. So I just all already fell apart. So, and we're here and we're having a, more fun than ever. So I just don't buy any of that. And so when people are like, but that might, but you might, yeah. Like this tour this summer, tour bus, the amount of logistics that go into doing 30 American cities in like 32 days or something. And my family goes and staging and all that. Like nobody could come. Nobody could come. Wow. And you're, you're okay with that? I'd rather, I just decided I was not going to live my life wondering what if. Hmm. You said that like it already all <laughs> fell apart. And so after that, you were able to gain this insight. Is that what, what's required to well, get there? I you just, think? I'll probably by my early thirties, I would go to speak somewhere and there'd be protesters out front, people with signs, boycotts. So I just right away, not being respected, not being understood, being hated, being, um, it just got like, oh, there's gotta be some other way to live this because you cannot control how people will respond to you or your work in the world. I have this, so it just all, yeah. so it just became about something else. I have the sense that to, to be a pastor, like there's a plethora of motivations, for, obviously for all of us, we're all mixed bag. I, you talk about that a lot, I think, but one of the motivating factors for being like a young preacher is whenever you get up, everyone's like, oh, you're a young preacher. That is so cute. We love young preachers. And you start to get addicted to the compliments and you start to let that be a motivating factor for you. And then when that turns on you, yes. which obviously the way things are no longer a puppy. Yeah. Puppies are cute. Everyone hates, mm -hmm. everyone loves a baby preacher, but they don't like a grown up one. And you've experienced that to degrees that like, I don't know of anyone else who I'd compare that to. Is that like you have to, you go through that and you realize this whole system or this motivating factor or partially motivating factor is just cancer? It's the difference between craft and success. Craft, success is all accolades. Success is money. Success is getting to the next level. Success mm -hmm. is the thing that you're going to arrive at. Craft is the art. It's the trade. It's the thing that you're doing. You're helping students. You're doing you're, you're working a craft here. The other morning I go surfing 645 sunrise and there's two city workers on the steps, about three steps up from where we are. And the one of them's probably in his fifties. The one of them's in his twenties and they're taking, they're taking the trash bins, um, off the beach. And the one is showing the other how it's done properly. The mm. older one, like there's a way things are done. There's a craft, mm. whatever it is, there's an art to it. And craft is fundamentally humbling because you, you're, the book I just turned in, man, it just broke me again. Because you're 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 working a long trade. You come from a long line of people. To do that. Mom, somebody runs a gas station. You're do you have a craft in the world. Success says, what more can I get? Craft says, can you believe I get to do this? Yeah. Hmm. So um, you are working a craft. You are shepherding people. You are communicating to them. You are guiding them. That's a craft. 
and you'll never get to the end of it. You'll always be learning. You'll always be growing. Hmm. And if you, if, you le- if you move from success to craft, then your joy will only get better and better and better and better. There's great stories about Tim Duncan in the huddle during a Spurs game saying to their guys, can you believe we get paid to do this? Yeah. How, so uh, It's joy. I think that's the only reason yes, to really exactly. joy. And mean, I can, I, when I meet somebody, I can tell in 10 seconds whether they're on the success or the craft hmm. track. What do you think you can do things to succeed and you get this kind of serotonin buzz, you get reinforced for it, and you want to do it more, and you can become like an addict. Absolutely. And, you know, but joy is the... Uh, and I think to come back to the very beginning when you're talking about presence, because if you're present, then you're not... Failure is living, you know, living in the past, worrying about the future. Yeah. You're, you're, never, you're never in the moment. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, not, I'm not the artist that the way Rob would be an artist, but... but I think psychologically, um, uh, Cheek Set Me High, his stuff on flow and peak experiences. Mm. I don't know if you know, his, his book on flow is... What's the name? Um, his, his, I can't spell it, but Cheek Set Me High, Mikhail Cheek Set Me High has written a book called Flow, but it's about yeah, yeah. these experiences. And, and you know you're in a flow state when like you're going to craft, when your competencies are matching the obstacles. You, know, you feel like you're being challenged, you're being pushed. And you experience uh, time dilation. You start not noticing the passage of time. Yes. Um, Absolutely. So those flow states. Wait, what's the name again? Flow is the name of the book. Oh, it's great. an old It's an old book. <clears throat> and he, he just had people track their happiness across yeah, the yeah, day yeah. And, and, and noticed that when people had found these activities, crafts or immersive activities where they were being artistic or creative or challenging or learning something, um, they were... They were and that's Most what's happening fulfilled. to you. Yeah. It often happens around your age. My age? Yeah. You start to realize that the fuel that you've been running on, it's important when you start out. It's important that people notice it and they affirm you. It's yeah. very meaningful. But you'll notice a shift. And if you don't make it, it's, but you're, you're, you're realizing that there's something about this that, that is not sustainable. Hmm. And as you shift into craft, you'll start to get really fun. Huh. Roar talks about first half of life. Everyone needs yes. that. Uh, yes. Or what is the thing to, to move the world? He has this great yes. uh, quote. Like at first, like you want to do that to, to move the world and have your part in it. And then the second half is. Yes. Learning. And you've had great success. So it will speed up the process. You will see the emptiness of it mm. sooner. And some of your peers may not understand what you're talking about, but people loving what you do and success speeds the thing up developmentally. Oh wait, the thing I was working so hard to achieve, I did. And I'm kind of, realizing it's a bit emptier but then you will rediscover but i get to do this how awesome is that and then you have like this renewed passion just renewed and it, and it yeah and it's unbelievable Which, so there okay so obviously i'm at the stage when this is supposed to be happening is there what am i supposed to be looking for what am i supposed to be having my ears open to to be aware of you get to preach this sunday i'm actually taking the sunday off but okay. next sunday you get to do this I get to do this. Make uh, that a mantra. Uh, I get to give these people this gift. That's all there is right here. I get to give people this gift. I'd say join gratitude. Yeah, exactly. You know, because mm-hmm. in the slavery of death, I talk about how the life of Jesus is kind of a life of self-expenditure. But when everybody hears that, they're like, well, I'm already burnt out. I'm already, I don't have anything to give. They kind of, Brene Brown, I'm operating out of feeling of scarcity. No. And, and so, the, you know, the line I have in there is you can only go as far as your joy can take you. Because mm. if you're not running on joy, 
Mm. You're, you're running, you're chasing after some reinforcer or some shame or some. So I, 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 you know, I think joy and gratitude are the indicators. Absolutely. Yeah, that's just good. That's just good. And, uh, you know, listen to me talk about, uh, uh, like, I, what was I, 33, 34, something like that, um, in that podcast. And, uh, like, talking, no, 32, 33, something like that. And, uh, like, talking like I wasn't a baby preacher back there. And that's, that's, that's rich. That's good stuff, Luke. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Rob and Richard are right on. Joy, the gratitude that you get to do what you get to do. It's right in front of you, whatever it is. It's a gift. Okay, uh, you guys had to know that uh, my guy Tom Wright, the probably most influential theologian in my life, is uh, is going to be on <laughs> the the podcast. And so there was a lot of choices for uh, clips I want to go to. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I, you know we probably have seven or eight hours of stuff with uh, the bishop, but um, I've got a, kind of a random clip that uh, is a live event, uh, also in California. Uh, late at night, it's like midnight California time. It's open air at this, um, you know, venue, uh, in Malibu. And, uh, I've been pitched this live event that Richard Beck was going to be at. And, um, Tony Jones was going to be there. Trip Fuller, Greg Boyd, Tom Wright was going to be there. And I was kind of pitched like, there's going to be like this dice with a bunch of people and Luke, you know, I'm just, you know, helping out whatever. And at one point, like no one's there except for me and Tom Wright on the stage. And so I'm kind of just like making stuff up as I go. And uh, <laughs> you'll see how this one goes with uh, the Bishop N.T. Wright. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so Dr. Wright, how do you feel about there being a generous orthodoxy about the actual existence of the devil or the non-existence of the devil? Um, wrong question. The... Um, uh, <laughs> Idiot. But it was it was it was the fourth, it was the fourth it was the fourth word in the sentence that was wrong. You said, "How did I feel?" And the answer is, right now, I'm feeling all sorts of things, but they're nothing to do with that. Um, so I think I think what you meant was, "How did how do I think about it?" Um, that which which is, is at least a coherent question which I can address. My, um, no, my dad's a psychologist. I was taught to ask, "How do you feel?" Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. But you know, when I was Bishop of Durham, sometimes the Archdeacon would say, "You know, Bishop, I feel very strongly." Which I say. I really don't care how you feel about it. Tell me how you think about it. Oh, okay. you, you can't, I mean, it's, it's actually a serious point. What's happened in our discourse, this is a different question, but it's a, at this time of night, I'm going to get away with it anyway. That's what um, I'm talking about. The, the, uh, our discourse has done exactly that because it feels kinder. Instead of saying, I think you're wrong, you say, I feel, oh, I have some issues about that one. And, and it becomes actually talking about me and my interiority rather than talking about the issue. Feelings, nothing yeah, yeah, more yeah, than yeah, feelings. Yeah, but then, but what we do is we say I feel when we mean I think, but then we collapse thinking into feeling, and that's the beginning of that postmodern thing I'm, I said before, where we don't actually discuss real issues. We don't know how to marshal arguments. We don't know how to deduce evidence. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about... All right, let me uh, cut off the bishop right there. Uh, so uh, the the dice gets real quiet. I'm there. I come over with a question on the spur of the moment. And of all things that I talk about, it's feelings, which if you've listened to the podcast any amount of times, you know that's not my, my go-to thing. But uh, Tom Wright was 
it, it was even less his thing. And I actually love that. Uh, t- Tom's been on multiple times since then. And if I would have been uh, a lesser man, I would have played the clip where he referred to me as one of his friends uh, from maybe the last episode or two podcasts ago. But instead, I'm going to have the one where he's making fun of me. And uh, the whole crowd likes to laugh at me as Tom Wright is making a joke at my expense. Uh, but it, the reason I really want to play that is his idea of um, he, the language of marshalling arguments, which is just a, a, a great phrase. Um, one of the things that I think is a foundational concept for what I try to do on the podcast, and this is why I have such a diversity of guests on the podcast and people with different opinions and different ideas and that they have a, a wide ranging perspective on different things is because we have lost the ability to disagree and argue about ideas without being uh, disagreeable as people. Like we've lost the idea to say that I disagree with you on this idea, but that doesn't mean I have to like hate you or I can't be around you or I can't listen to you or I can't hear you out. It, it is a, a sign of weakness and insecurity and it's often motivated by fear. It's often motivated by the fear of contamination that if I'm around you and you think X, then that means I'm going to be contaminated from my pure ideas that I can't be around you. The problem is in our day and age, and to have faith in the modern world, you have to exist within a pluralistic society where there will be a wide swath, a large plethora of different opinions. And if your only way of understanding your faith and your theology and your conception of God is when it is in an echo chamber with people who think the exact same thing as you, you will end up isolated and alone and often um like you're going to be in problem. You're going to have some serious problems because anyway, I won't try to prognosticate what happens with that. But what I will say is that it is not a fruitful representation of what faith is supposed to be. Uh, Jesus's prayer for us, the last prayer in John 17 that he prays for those who would believe is that they would be unified. It's not that they would all have unity of every opinion, but that they would have a unity that transcends disagreement. That's what we need to do. And that's one of the things that's just so central to what I do on the podcast. And so that's why we have so many different guests with a wide swath of experiences and opinions, including my beloved Franciscan priest friend, Richard Rohr. Uh, This next clip from Rohr is a conversation in March of 2019. And uh, this is one where uh, I went out there with um, Jason Miller. Uh, one of the things that I, th- I think you might see as a theme is a lot of these podcasts that I traveled to, whether the first one was Tom Wright with uh, with uh, Stormont, uh, Richard Rohr. I've gone out there with a, a, a wide different group of friends from my preacher group that I get with in the fall. I did a podcast before. I was with uh, 12 Guys and Him. Uh, Paul Nevison, who's been on a handful of times. He's my buddy who used to work at Hillsong. Um, he's been out to see Richard Rohr with me. This time, Jason Miller went out. And that's kind of one of the... the tertiary benefits of the podcast is having this thing to share with my friends. But uh, Jay's in the background. He doesn't say much on this, but what you hear is some just beautiful wisdom from Father Roar as he's processing his own uh, mortality. And um, yeah, so get ready for something serious here. Uh, I'm not that sage yet to really ponder that, but I can, I know that it's, it's out there. It's out there. It's all you need to know now. But like when you're in front of those stages, that's, that's when those things become more real to you. Yeah. Like in, in the book you reference, it was almost like a throwaway thing where you say, yeah, I believe in new heavens and new earth. 
Mm-hmm. And so, like the the eschaton, whatever language you want to use about that, that's there. You reference it. it it's not a big centerpiece. And and some might imagine, in light of, um, in terms of, you didn't spend a whole lot of time writing about it, and maybe that didn't fit in the book. But as you entertain mortality, does that conversation become different to you, or more pertinent, or the conversation of heaven of what of what's next? Yeah. You're at Parker Palmer's language, On the um, Brink of Everything. Did you read that? Yeah. yeah, it's a good book. It's a very good book. You know, I guess if I'm honest, I don't think about it that much. I just know if this life has been as wonderful as it has been, with my feeble response, and I mean that sincerely, I'm not always the great person people think I am. Uh, what must the eternalization of this world be, which is how I understand, you know, eternal life. What you choose now is what you will have forever. Um, So I I guess I'm just inherently hopeful, but beyond that I have no idea what to expect. Or, you know, I really don't. Is it a big family reunion with all of humanity? Mm. I hope so, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah. My my wife's grandfather, and again, I have to like caveat these stories because they're about other people. He, I, I told the story in my book, so I'm allowed to say it publicly. But his his wife had uh, of almost six decades passed away, and he uh, we're at a family gathering. He says, "Look, come here." And so, like, I, I know, like, this is going to be a serious question. And so he takes me into, like, a back room away from the rest of the family, and he goes, when I get to heaven, am I going to be able to see my, my Shirley? Do I get a serious... And, and Old obviously, couples always say that. And yes. I, I, I'm sure you've been asked that question many mm-hmm. times. And my answer is similar to maybe kind of what you were expressing. No. That I, I don't know exactly what it's like, but I no. trust that God is love. No. And that if, if, if God is behind it, then God's going to make it right. That's a good answer. I think it's, you know, that line from Jesus has always haunted me. In heaven, there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. Yep. Don't limit it to Shirley, to one person. Now you're going to be capable of universal love. And how you loved Shirley and how Shirley loved you was the school for your capacity for universal love. You know, don't limit it to one couple. They were your training wheels. I'm not trying to make light of marriage, but um, if the only meaning of eternity is to cuddle with your partner for all eternity, that isn't a big enough heaven. You understand? It has to be the universal family. It has to be all of creation. I'm sure you're going to hold some kind of hand with your partner, but don't limit it to that. But it's like the, the streets of gold. Like that's as good as we can imagine. That's a, well, well put. And, as good as we can imagine. And yeah. if it's as good as, like, I can't imagine not seeing my my daughters. Sure. Like, there's no way there's a good no future way. without that. That's right. But I know that that inclination that says I want I, I want that with them is going to be bigger than what it's going to become bigger. It's going to be magnified. That would be my belief and understanding. Yes, mm. and. uh yeah, if you if you tie it too much to your daughters, it isn't a very big heaven. Okay. They're just the gateways, hmm. and that's not to minimize them. 
Oh. But th- that's the tendency is I want to localize. Yeah. And yeah. Christ wants to uh-huh. universalize. Very good. Right? Very good. See, that's booked out and, right there. And God must understand that, that we can only know what we know. How do, how do we get away from just, I, I want to localize just to, like, this is the tribal stuff. Like, it's my people, yeah. my town, and my language, mm-hmm. my background, and, and the name of my church building. <laughs> and it's always, like, expanding to something bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to resist that. See, and that's got to be the reign of God, the, much bigger than our little kingdoms, I would think. But God uses our little kingdoms. It's okay. But be ready to let go of even that. Maybe that's the final letting go of. Letting go of our small schema for a bigger one. It would have to be. But beyond that, I'm, I'm living in darkness just like you are. But you said it so well. If God is love, that's all we really have. Then I can let go of needing to figure it out or fix it. Hmm. Thanks for talking about that. I appreciate you being vulnerable about that. I know you don't have to do that, but uh, I wasn't very hard. (laughs) (laughs) There's that oneness. Ah, Okay. It wasn't that big a deal. (laughs) How great is his laugh? Uh, That is just really, really beautiful. And it's, it's humbling. Like in, in that moment when that happened, uh, when he was talking about that and his willingness to talk about his own mortality, like I knew that was uh, a special moment. And, like one of the things about being a preacher is that you get to go into those, um, like what uh, the Celtics call like a thin space, uh, the place where like the divide between heaven and earth seems to get really, really thin. And I've had more than my fair share of those on the podcast where people were willing uh, to talk about things like that. And so it's really um, humbling to hear that. And it's a reminder, this idea of letting go, I think all spirituality is about letting go. That's, that's Rohr's line. And you practice that throughout life and you develop this muscle memory to, to let go. And then finally at the end, you've already built up the muscle memory so that when you get to the very precipice of the age to come, you've, you're ready for that. And unfortunately, that final letting go doesn't always happen when it's supposed to. And it's happened far too many times with, um, uh, with people who've been on the podcast, including, um, uh, this, this, uh, this next guest, this is, uh, from March, 2015, uh, and it's, uh, Rachel Held Evans. Then, you know, I hit young adulthood and just had some questions about what I was hearing and, and being taught in my evangelical church and kind of moved away from some of those beliefs and previously held convictions. And so I found my way to a, a more liturgical tradition, which I, I love both stylistically and theologically. I go to an Episcopal church, but yeah. In recent years, I feel like I've started to sort of make peace with the fact that I this doesn't mean I have to reject evangelicalism. So yeah. I kind of think of myself as like an evangelical Episcopalian, which is Are basically you? like, I love Jesus, but I drink a little, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, as, as you know, Rachel passed away uh, a couple uh, a couple years ago, and uh, just... Uh, Young, I mean, she's younger than I am right now. When she passed away, and I think she left uh, a husband and, and two kids. And um, one of the things that's 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 uh, sad. And I, and I don't pretend like me and Rachel were good friends. I think she might have been on one other time. Um, but uh, you just never get to know where where the story ends up. And you know, she talks about like her. The book was um, Searching for Sunday. I think I think that's the title. 
and it talks about like the evolution of like her faith and i think everyone goes through that and one of the things that's uh often an overlooked and underappreciated component is that for many of us we have time for that story to to flesh out and you get time for things to get ironed out and time to figure out like this is you know, who I am, this is what I believe, and this is what is life-giving to me, and this is the foundation of, of who I am. And, uh, you know, I, it, I would be saddened if I had to stop in my late 30s because I feel like there's a lot still more to grow and uh, a lot of places where I can still get to um, that, that God is still working on me. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, Rachel, uh, unfortunately joins a list of a handful of other names of people who've passed, uh, that have been on the podcast. Um, Eugene Peterson, uh, was on, uh, towards the very end of his life. And if you listen to that podcast, it was a couple years ago. Um, Eugene Peterson has been a huge influence on many of our lives. Uh, but at the end, like you could tell, like he, um, like to the point where I, like I actually edited that one. There's just so many pauses between like when I'd ask a question, he would respond. Like you, you, you could tell, like it was just a person who'd been around many years and that's, uh, in some ways like a beautiful thing uh, that, that he was gifted those years, but not everyone was a friend of mine from Austin, uh, named Sean Adams. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. And after he passed away, one of the things I did, it was, it was a heart attack. He was in his forties, I think probably 46 and, like I went back and listened to the podcast we did because it was great for me to connect and, and hear his voice again. Uh, a, a guy named Josh Patrick, who is a father of three, preacher, uh, same age as me, died from cancer a couple of years ago. And uh, one of my good friends who wasn't uh, actually on this podcast, but I've been on his a few times, then Mark Rogers, he, uh, he passed away, um, I guess a little over a year ago or so at this point. Um, and... Like after he passed away, one of the things I did is I went back and I found the episodes on his show that I went back uh, and, and listened to those. And um, yeah, it just it's just heartbreaking and it's it's a definitely a, a benefit that I never thought podcasts would be. But in some ways, they're like a time capsule that you can go back and remember uh, those you've lost and and um, and hear their voice again. And again, like it's it's a gift that you have the ability to continue to grow and to treasure things and to experience them. And you know, one of the things that I feel like happens as I've getting older, I like I'm learning how. Uh, to be grateful more and to savor and to appreciate what's right in front of me. And it doesn't always come easy to me, but I, I, it comes honestly because I feel like this is God's work in my life. And uh, I think I'm, you're going to hear a little bit more about that in this um, uh, this uh, conversation with uh, Barbara Brown Taylor from, this is, I think, maybe a year ago, September 2021. See? I mean, I think that echoes what we were talking about earlier is, is that you had a few more years logged, right? A few more miles on your odometer and, mm-hmm. and, and f- through luck or grace or smartness, you've got some lovely things logged. I, I, I have noticed more and more and more how much that matters to me. It's not instead of the present or whatever my sense of the future is, but ah, you can savor what you've done. I mean, there's, there's a savor. I love that. The difference between saving and savoring, even though you mm-hmm. took that back and tried some other words. I like, I tried to walk it back, but I don't yeah. know what the original one was, but yeah, you can. No, yeah, I love that. that. I love that. I think who was it? Somebody said you couldn't even be what? 40, 40 is the key age. I, I heard that at one point in the life of Judaism, you couldn't read the book of what? Job until you were 40. You couldn't, no, you couldn't read Ezekiel. Song of Solomon. Yeah. I thought oh, Song really? of Solomon. Oh, okay. Lots of stuff. Yeah, little spicy stuff in there. But yeah. it so, could, I, 
I'll trust you over me, though. Let's say it's Job. No, I think it's Ezekiel. So, and you okay. think it's Song of Solomon? So we got sex and prophecy there. That's really good, you know. But <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> take I, that I, out, I, Luke. Take I, that part. I try not. I try not to mix those two things together. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, but yes. So you couldn't be <laughs> reading Ezekiel until you're forty. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about. Let's go back. I don't know. Let's I rewind. Know. Okay, you rewind. Know. Wait, wait, wait. Well, I'm going to go back. Now, this whole part, okay. you're going to cut out. Now we're going to start again. You ready? One, two, go. three. Okay. I Am love- I asking the question? No. You got- <laughs> I can't even figure out where to pick it up, but I think there was enough in there. I just love what you said about your 40th birthday. And 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 I. there's a richness in memory. I, that, that's where parallel universes are probably... Elon Musk comes back into the conversation because I'm convinced in some ways that I'm still five. I'm still eight. I'm still 16. I'm still 21. I'm still 29. I'm still 40 because I can revisit those places and I can even smell some of the stuff from those places. I can see it. I can taste it. I know where I was. And the richness of memory enhances my sense of where I am now because I know I'm laying down tomorrow's memory. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know what I remember? One of the, I think it was the second time you and I talked. My, I think my oldest daughter was like three or four, and I was working from home. My wife uh, uh, was uh, working at the hospital. She's a neonatal ICU nurse. And so she's gone. I'm watching the kids, and I'm recording this during nap time. And my daughter comes and bangs on the door while I'm talking to you, like this <laughs> first time, I think. <laughs> and she goes, Daddy, come wipe my hiney. And she's yelling. And I was just like, I didn't know you well enough to be like, hey, um, I'm sorry, but my daughter needs her honey wiped. Um, and I was like super anxious and stressed. I was like, okay, I, I love you, but you're just going to have to hold on a second. We're going to do this in a minute. Um, but yeah, like those memories, they're, they're uh-huh. it's that, that line about Mary where like after Jesus was born and all that, it says that she like, she treasured these things. Uh-huh. And like they, they're still there. And I, I think, uh, you know, for those who've who've lost someone, like I think the thing about I, I've heard someone say that like grief is like carrying around a like br- a brick, huh? and you never get rid of it. Like it's just part of your new, new mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. But at first, it seems like well, you don't want to labor with this weighty object in your pocket all the time. But then you go, well, well if I don't have that, then what do I have of them? Mm-hmm. And so part of I think what what grief is is that it's it's love that continues to hold on to you, and mm-hmm. so. That's still there. The, the memory is still there. The years are still there, um, as we continue to move on. But they're they're never gone. Mm-hmm. That was beloved Barbara Brown Taylor. So good, so good. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm uh, actually getting through these a lot faster than I thought. So maybe I'm just going to power through this whole thing. Um, okay, uh, the next one. Uh, something else that I've always uh, will savor are the relationships that have formed on the podcast. And so there have been two people who have been especially. Uh, meaningful in their commitment and their help. Um, one from the beginning and one who's jumped in halfway through. Uh, but both of them have put a lot of time and effort into helping this podcast be what it is. And so uh, without further ado, here's me talking to them not too long ago together. Listen to it. Gun shy. Get ready for some awesome. I was gun shy for that very reason. Um, I am very honored I received a lot of great questions for this mailbag podcast, and I knew that I couldn't do this by myself. So I wanted to bring two of my favorite people in the world on the podcast, my friend Jason Miller, who is a 
thoughtful, empathetic human being. And if you don't know him, you will be lucky to hear from him. Jay, welcome to the podcast from Southman, Indiana. And Jonathan Stormont, who is, it says in scripture somewhere that this, there is a man without guile. And I want to say that's Jonathan. He is the most honest, genuine person that I know. No matter what room he's in, he is the same person, which is why he says he's an Enneagram 3, but he's wrong about that. But he is right about his character. So Jay and Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. I'm confused. I, I always brace myself for a, a difficult intro with you. You want a different I one? I know. You want a different one? No, okay, let's really do a different kind. one. Um, we have what I needed for all these questions. We needed both ends of the spectrum. So I needed someone who was a New Age pastor, which is Jay. And so we need from, <laughs> someone from the New Age and then someone from the Stone Age. And that's Jonathan. Uh, so the New Age, Stone good, Age. Good. Got them both good, covered. Good. My question. Uh, <clears throat> Jay, do you know uh, Luke accidentally called me when he was trying to call you when he was working on a joke? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I answered. This was like last week. I answered, and he was just giggling to himself, like a little junior high boy. About it, I think I think it might have been that jokey. Just <laughs> it was. It was definitely the new age Stone Age thing. That's what. I- okay, so I was nice once. I don't need to do it again. But let me remind you uh, that occasionally, like I'll see uh, people criticize my my making fun of my friends. But uh, here's the problem: uh, people who think that uh, probably just need to be made fun of more. Uh, no, I don't think so. Like I'm joking, obviously, like there's just a a way of, um, interacting that, uh, it, it shows love and uh, not everyone experienced that. And, uh, in light of the way that our country has a new definition for locker room talk, I will not call it locker room talk because I don't want to be included in what is now commonly understood as locker room talk in our culture. But, um, you know, it's just the way that I express love. So, uh, you know, Deal with it, or you don't have to listen, which is also another option. Um, Let me introduce you to uh, someone else that um, got to know uh, in 2014. I had him on the podcast, first time. First time they were ever on a podcast, and uh, they're a unique person because they have... uh, uh, the way that their work is connected to so many people since then has been pretty fun to watch. And uh, it's it's just neat to have a front row uh, uh, viewing situation, also known as a front row seat, to uh, to the way that uh, Austin Shane Brown has connected to a lot of people. Uh, so here she was in the very beginning. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have joining us from the beautiful campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Mrs. Austin Channing Brown. Austin, how are you today? I'm good. I'm excited and a little nervous. Now, what our listeners don't know is this is your very first time on a podcast and also your very first time using Skype. First time. Congratulations on figuring that out. You've done a great <laughs> job setting up your Skype username and account. Be gentle. Now, you say one of the things that's going to be required for us to get to reconciliation is for the white church to experience shame. Now, yeah, people didn't like that. No, no one likes that. I mean, you don't have to be Brene Brown to realize no one wants to experience shame. Okay, so yeah. first of all, I'm like, no, I don't like. This is a terrible idea. I don't like shame. Okay, we're gonna hide that, minimize it, cover it up with something. Why do Why do I, as a white Christian, need to experience shame for yeah. reconciliation to happen? Okay, so I, w- I just want to make one clarification. Okay, I feel like a lot of people read the post and felt like. I was asking individuals, so I was asking Luke to feel shame. Well, not quite. <laughs> well, I, okay, well, I, I kind of feel that, like, I'm white, I'm a Christian. People, yeah. A lot of people did. And what I'm really calling for is for the white church mm-hmm. to say what we created churches. Shameful. Shame on us. What we did was shameful. 
Yep. That the white church, um, I feel like instead of experiencing the shame, the shame to get to healing would rather just put up a wall and not acknowledge that what was done was shameful and that what was done has had consequences that still exist today. So you think a first step could be for a white leader to get up and say, you know, as a white Christian, I just want to say what happened in the past was shameful. And that's a place to start. I think so. But in context of what's happening locally, because the story of Ferguson isn't just in Ferguson. White flight didn't just happen in Ferguson. Mm-mm. White flight happened in every urban area all over the country. Right. Yeah. Um, redlining happened in multiple areas all over the country. Um Racial injustice happened everywhere, all over the country. So if a liberal church were to say, you know what? We have to acknowledge our history as a white church who did endorse slavery or who didn't speak during Jim Crow or um, who who isn't acknowledging today's racial justice. Because I recognize not every church was around then. Not every church is that old. But if you've been ignoring the racial justice issues right in your community— that's something to confess. Yeah. It's something to confess and to feel deep emotions about. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, I, I cut uh, two clips together. So like the opening where she talks about the first podcast and then I jump right into that quote. Uh, that's not actually how the conversation went. If you want to go listen to the full one, that again, that was 2014 in uh, August. But uh, one of the things I appreciate about this podcast has been a great opportunity for me to uh, learn different experiences and one of the things that our country has been in the middle of uh, in a very acute way is conversations about race and conversation about what does justice look like? What does it mean uh, for churches to be uh, congregations who live out the call of scripture to uh, walk humbly, to do justice and mercy? Like those are central calls of Christianity. And now what does that look like? We're we're trying to figure that out. And the podcast has been a great uh, venue for me to learn and to listen to voices other than uh, the ones that are right in front of me. And I, I hope you've been able to gather some uh, some great uh, wisdom from these people and uh, to learn in the same way that I have. And I think one of the central things that we have to do is learn how to listen. And that's what's going to build empathy. And if we don't understand how people experience things, and honestly, one of the things I learned from Austin is just the way that um, that people of color and white people experience a process and like we were talking about Ferguson on that podcast and there's certain there's certain things that are just innate in me that I just go well let let the process work out it's gonna uh, like the truth will come out and that's how I experience things it's part of it like I grew up with an an aunt who's a cop I have a lot of friends who are in law enforcement and there are certain things that people of uh, that that she's describing have different experiences and now I'm not trying to give a solution on how to fix things. That's not what I'm doing. What I know is that people don't have much of a stomach to have conversations about race right now. And we need to get better about that. And we need to learn how to be empathetic and understanding without getting our feelings hurt anytime someone says something that makes us uncomfortable. And if you can't do that on a podcast, you can do that anywhere. Now, uh, this next person on the podcast is uh, influential uh, for a different reason. Uh, this is a conversation with someone who has uh, been in the center of a scandal that he has created. And on the podcast, we talked a lot about uh, Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill uh, because like a lot of people were talking about it. And what's happened recently with Hillsong is one I haven't really talked about. Um, and one of the reasons is because I've had uh, a handful of conversations with people like Carl Lentz. And so I want you to listen to this clip. Uh, this is from conversation with Carl, December of 2017, and uh, we'll talk about it in a second. Actually, it's two clips. I'm going to splice them together, but uh, you get the point. 
I, I preached something similar to that one time at a, at a youth conference. Tons of kids got saved, and this um, this mom wrote me, and she was like, uh, "Like, thank you for your message. My son got saved." Um, however, the point you made about hats, it, uh, hats are reverent or irreverent. Like she went on and on, mm-hmm. so it's like she missed the tree. Yeah, in her forest yeah, yeah, of yeah, criticism. For sure. It's like, wait, wait, your son got saved though. That's. But you're mad at me about hats that didn't even apply to you, your son, or this context of conversation. Yeah. And it's moments like that where you go, I'm, yep, I'm going. I'm going the right direction. You're going the right direction. Okay, so your book, it's kind of promoted by like Simon Schuster, I think. Yep. That's your people. And they, uh, you know, Carl's not your average looking pastor or something. Yeah. That gets, a lot of that gets kind of thrown around. Yeah. And you... As I'm saying that, you seem uncomfortable. Well, it's the only thing I let them do. Man, mm-hmm. I feel like they wrote that bio. And I'm, I'm cool to play the game a little bit. Like, if the object is to get the gospel and the message to people, um, they felt like that kind of description yeah. is more appealing to those who don't know. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I don't think that's... I don't. I think we're changing the way that is. Like, what is the typical pastor now? Hopefully, mm-hmm. they look like us a little bit, which is regular dudes. Like, who are you? Be that. That means you're a pastor. So, yeah, the leather jacket, tattoos, it's like everybody has leather jackets. A lot of guys have tattoos. Yeah. So it, it's uncomfortable, but some of that stuff you got you to gotta kind of play with and, and make it work for you because it is what it is. My fir- I think my first encounter of you was a podcast you did with Relevant like five years yeah, ago. Yeah. And they asked a question like, oh, man, your church is doing great. You must be awesome. What are you doing? And you diffuse that sort of mm. praise. And you're like, no, there's a lot of churches that are doing great, and mm. I, we don't ex- I, I forget exactly your terminology, but my first thought was, I really admire how you diffuse the praise and we're really humble about that. And so I... Yeah, I think it's, it's more of a, a self-awareness of even that thought of your church is fruitful. Um, relevance, the exception, because they're awesome. I think Tyler was the guy who I did that interview with many years ago, did another one with him recently. But outside of Tyler or an interview that I know, someone would be like, your church is, is successful. And to which I'd say... No, you mean it's big. That doesn't mean it's, we are successful. It's because mm-hmm. we're faithful and we're kind and we're doing the gospel. Mm-hmm. But it just happens to have numbers right now. And I think, I do think churches that are healthy should grow. I don't think it's always going to be numerical. I do think it should be a part of it. I think there's a backlash in American church of people who haven't grown now creating a theology around their small church. Mm-hmm. As if it's a disparagement if your church is growing. I think that's sad. Uh, but yeah, for us, we're just being faithful and this is what it looks like right now. Mm-hmm. And so we'll use that platform to point it back to Jesus all day long. What do you say to the church members who are complaining because their pastor's not making their church grow? And they say, well, why don't you be like, you know, Joe and Carl and whoever else, because their churches are growing. What do you say to that church member um, who's complaining to their pastor because pastor's not making their church grow? I would, I would look less at the growth and look more at the teaching. So if a pastor's teaching what's right, and he's planting the right seeds, and he's being faithful to the call, God's what makes it grow. That pastor can't make a church grow. If he could, he would. So that means God has a different plan. I always say you plant in soil that you trust, that is holy, that's righteous, and and you choose that. So I would say if your pastor's doing the right thing, and he's preaching the gospel, and he loves Jesus, that's the most important thing. If there comes a season where you can see it in the in the pews in the in the in the congregation, so be it. But um, I, yeah, I don't have a lot of time for people who are criticizing their their pastors. 
Let me be clear. I uh, do not think it is a uh, good thing to have an affair. don't think it's what a pastor should be doing or anyone should be doing for that matter. Um, I think... Uh, I think... I think the reason I was really comfortable to talk about Mars Hill and what happened with Driscoll is because just to be real honest, like I, I didn't really connect to what he did from the very beginning. And if I'm being real transparent, like there's part of me that's like, well, yeah, I figured this guy's a jerk and this stuff was going to come out that, you know, some of us have heard rumblings about for a long time and now it's kind of public knowledge. And, uh, it, you know, I, I think Driscoll needs to be held accountable for what he did. Um, and uh, like there's, if I'm real, real honest, like I'm, there was a very immature part of me that, that kind of wasn't upset about that happening publicly to him. And uh, with Carl, if I'm being honest, like I, like I, I felt, found the dude to be really likable. Um, I, you know, I don't follow a ton of his work. I didn't like listen to a lot of his sermons or honestly, I don't think I've ever listened to one of his sermons, but I, like I enjoy talking with him. And when you hear him talk right there, um, like, you know, the, the dude's a likable guy and you know, after that podcast, I, I said to many of my friends, like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful he's, he's on the team and he, you know, he, he does things that are like different than me. And, you know, even on the podcast, like you, he, he doesn't seem to have any like awareness of what seminary is like. So it's just like completely different world of training than what I came up in. But like, we need people like Carl doing what he's doing, but we don't, <laughs> we don't need someone who doesn't, um, like take care of his own house. Like that, that's, that's, that's a problem. And, um, like, I'm not trying to dilute that, but I'm just being honest. Like, I think, uh, it's, you know, it's terrible what he did. It destroyed what he could be doing. And like, it's a reminder that, uh, you know, there are consequences to decisions you made and, uh, like nothing should be whitewashed about like what he did, of course. But, um, I also know the same thing in me that enjoyed seeing Driscoll, um, getting trashed is probably in a lot of people when it comes to, uh, the way they, they see, they see Carl. And, um, uh, like there are a lot of people in the history of the church, um, like in the Bible and then even in American history that have had, uh, substantial personal problems. And, uh, you know, we need to like, I don't know, maybe have a little grace towards people. And that doesn't mean he should be a pastor again. And that doesn't mean he should have kept his job or whatever, but I'm just saying like, there's, there's a lot at work when we uh, talk about people and uh, we need a little, little bit of love. It's good for all of us. And, um, you know, one of the people that's really good about helping us remember love is uh, this next guest. Um, this is uh, the bishop, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, uh, you know, Michael Curry. And one of the things that's uh, particularly neat about this conversation is He's here uh, in Austin at our building for um, an ordination ceremony, which we'll talk about a little bit. But uh, the reason he's here is that uh, Westover and our neighbor church, St. Matt's, has uh, has developed like this great relationship. And it all started with one of um, one of our elders who's in the hospital, uh, visiting someone in the hospital, and they met uh, one of the priests across the street, Christian, um, who used to work for uh, Becca Stevens. And so he connected us and we had this common connection of Becca Stevens that I knew through the podcast and he knew from working with her. And like, that was part of like the impetus for us connecting. And then, uh, Merrill Wade, who was the uh, former rector over there, became a friend. He, he's been on the podcast and it, it's neat that uh, in some, honestly, some small way, uh, the way that Westover and St. Matt's has gotten together is partly because of like the relationships that were fostered on this, uh, this very podcast. And so it's pretty neat to see that and, uh, the way that, uh, what happened here impacts, uh, 
our real life church situation for me. And so here is uh, Bishop Michael Curry. Yep. And so, but we have no idea what's happening tomorrow. Like we love Merrill, we love the Episcopal Church, but uh-huh. we don't do ordinations. We don't do any, like I don't have fancy. Oh. I, don't, I don't get cool clothes like you do. Oh yeah. And so this uh, is new. Like our church yeah. is like we love St. Matt's. We want to serve and sure. honor our neighbors. You're all and, neighbors to each other. But what is hap- What's hap- Like we're not sacrificing lambs yeah. or anything like that. There's no going to yeah. be fatted calf. <laughs> no. what? Well, there may be, but that's to eat at the reception. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, what is happening? Like, if my church is like, hey, what, what, what just took place? How do I explain that to them? That's a good question. Well, you know, I think what it really is, if you distill it down, the core of the service um, is the people affirming their trust that they and the Spirit together have called Kay to be a bishop. Mm-hmm. And they will do that in part of the service. And then Kay will affirm or reaffirm her faith mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, and in the Holy Scriptures as, as God's Word written. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she will assure them of her loyalty to that and to the church. And then there's Scripture and mm-hmm. readings, three Scripture readings, and um, a preacher will preach. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you doing in the she- service? Uh, well, I'm, I preside. Okay. I basically preside um, and then lead the bishops when we actually lay hands on her okay. and ordain her. And that's kind of the centerpiece of the service when she takes some vows and promises, um, um, uh, things like, you know, will you uh, study the Holy Scriptures and have your life led by them? Yeah. Um, you know, it's vows like that. I mean, mm-hmm. basic vows um, for a person who's going to be a leader in the church. Um, nice. And so she'll take those vows and bishops will ask her the vows. And then um, at a point, um, there'll be a hymn usually invoking the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I haven't seen the program, so I don't know exactly which one they're using. Mm-hmm. But it'd be something, come holy. One of the ones usually says, come holy ghost, our souls inspire, enlightened with celestial fire. Mm. Um, and so it'd be something like that. And then after that, um, there'll be a moment of, of, of real silence. I mean, extended period of silence. Oh, wow. And and then then we'll pray the prayer of consecration over her. And then all the bishops will lay hands on her, praying God to make her a bishop in God's church. Um, and, and that's really the core of the service. And then after that, we have Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, yeah, like a normal Sunday morning. Outstanding. Um, and so that's really it. So it's really actually a simple service. Now, there will be music, and mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't seen the program, so I don't know what music they're going to do, but I'm sure there will be various kinds of music. And um, I, I I don't think we'll have dancers tomorrow, but there are <laughs> churches that have liturgical really? dancers. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there are. There are some, and... Uh, but it's so there'll be ceremony around it. But the ceremony is is ceremony around it. The yeah. core um, is reading of scripture, taking of vows, preaching, laying on of hands, and prayer. Yeah. All right. So once we figured out uh, what was going on with this ordination ceremony, this is me talking to him about love and specifically him performing the royal wedding a few years before, and what he wanted to say. So that that was my goal, and 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 so if that's. All I ever am remembered for, that's good enough. I, I, there, there are worse yeah. things to be known for. Yeah, exactly. That, that was a great sermon. It, well, you're kind. Thanks, brother. I went, yeah, I, yeah, I went back I, and I listened so. to it this week, and I was, that's, that's a good sermon. It was gospel. It was, it was, the, it was the gospel. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was, you know, which ironically, I mean, ironically, um, strangely, um, for a message about love to actually have been news 
What does that say? In a Christian church, it's saying a lot. What do you think it, it says? Well, I think part of it, what it says is I think we as Christians, and I say that I'm, I am one, mm-hmm. um, we, has, we have not been as effective or as faithful to living that message out enough for the world to see and know that that's what a Christian is. Hmm. That's how you know a Christian. I mean, Jesus said by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, mm-hmm. that you have love for one another. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jesus was real clear about that. Um, but sometimes we've clouded that over or made it difficult for people to see. Mm-hmm. And um, so that just means we have work to do to, to make that plain, to let it be plain, and then to invite folk to really live into that. Yeah. And so, so on the one hand, it was... Uh, uh, on one hand, that it was news was kind of an indictment. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it was an invitation. Yeah. An invitation that that message has co- cogency, that the gospel still can be heard in our world. Yeah. Um, and, if the, and that is the case. That therefore means we have work to do and we can do it. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, that bishop, that man can preach. That man can preach. Uh, so Bishop Curry is uh, someone who's... Uh, been a great representative uh, for uh, for Christianity. Just love that he's he's on the team. Love he's on the team, and uh, it's been great to get to to, to meet him and uh, the way that kind of he floats. Obviously, doing the royal wedding in some crazy celebrity culture world, which uh, you know, uh, I, that's that's something else. But uh, you know, I've had uh, an opportunity to brush shoulders with a few myself on the podcast, including uh, this one. It's a gentleman that all you Office fans will remember as Dwight Schrute. Here's. Rain Wilson. Okay, so what everyone wants to know is how is Dwight <laughs> worshiping? How, how is, like, help us to connect the dots on right. your character, you, you, 200 plus episodes being this right. guy. How did you see that um, to take the. You have more podcast episodes than there are office episodes, by the way. I'm assuming the royalty checks I get for my advertisement <laughs> is not comparable, though. Do you have some really embarrassing advertisements on your podcast sometimes? No, I think like Podbean Dr. and all Dr. Scholl's shoe inserts. No, Podbean and all in one podcast hosting publishing network. That's not embarrassing. I'm proud to be connected to okay, them. Okay, there you go. Especially when those nice checks plug. come in the mail. Well done. Yeah, thank well you. Done. I'm a professional. Okay, but when you're uh, having your keys put in Jello uh, by uh-huh. Stapler. Jim Stapler, Stapler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whoa, wow. Like, I can mess up Jesus and won't get that response. Uh, you mess up Dwight. Okay, help us connect the dots on that. Um, when that's in, in Jello and you're entertaining the world, you're making people laugh, how do you see that as worship? Well, you know, hmm. It's not quite so black and white. I think that some art is just for entertainment and is decorative and it isn't. Uh, uh, it isn't as pure as it could be. So that I want to say that, number one. Number two is um, I have a God-given ability to play weird characters that are funny and strange. And uh, I love doing it, and it's a lot of fun, and uh, I, I, get to, I get to do it. And I've done it ever since I was a kid. I played just weird characters yeah. at the dinner table. So I get to do that, number one. Um, I think there is something really uh, profound about what an actor does. Actors get a bad rap, and rightfully so, because most of them are... I really want to swear in here, but I'm not going to swear. The acoustics would make it really amazing yeah, but to not swear. So most, most actors are complete, you know, and... I don't know. Yeah. 
But uh, you, it's I'm a not be- going to say it. But I will say there is something really amazing when you see a great performance, when you see an actor transform themselves to become a character and to help tell a story, and you witness the all of humanity uh, expressing on their face and uh, in their humor and in their physicality and in their history, and it can be really transformative and it transports you when you're watching it when yeah. it's great. So I think there's something transcendent and divine about the craft of an actor, just like the craft of a musician or a, or a poet or a dancer. Um, I think that for me, uh, the service of doing Dwight, I mean, it was just really super fun, and, and, but the service is I hear all the time from people, and now that it's kind of living on Netflix and, and everyone and their mother is watching it and rewatching it, which is fantastic, uh, I always hear like, you know, my brother was dying from cancer and we would stay in the hospital bed and we would watch the office and we would just laugh together. And your show meant so much to me. I was going through the hardest time and I really needed to laugh. And you hear that time and time again, like our family was really disunited, but we would always gather on Thursday nights and we would watch the office together. Mm -hmm. And it was the only show that the grandma and the dad and the sons and kids could all watch at the same time. And so I think there's... Uh, I was fortunate to be a part of a really high-quality show that was able to entertain and make laugh, but also had really human characters that people related to, and it was kind of like a it was like a wonderful dysfunctional family. Yeah, one of the beautiful things I think about it is it creates community and it, it brings people together. Mm-hmm. And I think to in the Genesis creation story, Genesis 1, God creates and says it's good. And I think there's something about enjoying the goodness of God's creation is seen in humor and, and smiling and laughing. I feel mm-hmm. like that reflects the beauty of the world that God has given us. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that beauty brings us together is that, like you just said, people sit down and watch the show together. Uh, about eight or nine years ago, I was working at this church. Um, I was on staff and I was about to go start another one. And so it was a big staff and we would sometimes get together and watch uh, the office uh, as the whole group. And one time we got the senior pastor to show up and we were watching it and it was, we were so excited. Oh, this is going to be awesome. There's three or four young families. And then the, like the, the big dog shows up <laughs> and it was the gay witch hunt episode. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, um, okay. This is, yeah, it was not my idea. Um, yeah. so thanks for that. That was, that was a real right, special right. moment <laughs> for me. How did it go over? Uh, I mean, I had to leave the church in a few months, but okay. <laughs> uh, uh, that was part of the plan. But isn't that, like, I can't think of a, a bigger gift that an artist can create than to give something that brings people together, that creates joy and laughter. And so I, I think be able to fuse those things together in the same way that we need to be able to fuse together science and religion, creativity mm-hmm. and religion, like we're... And, and the most important thing in the Baha'i faith, uh, and I believe in the true Christian faith is service and service to others. And if you are creative, if you're entertaining someone, if you're transporting their heart with, with music and song, if you're uh, making them ponder their lives with poetry, if you're making them laugh with acting, whatever it is, you're doing a service for that person. So besides being a creator and emulating the creator, that's another aspect of art that it, it, it can be... It can be incredibly self-indulgent and uh, materialistic and wrong-headed as well. Don't get me wrong, but when it's at its most pure, it really is service to the people that are witnessing it. Yeah. All right, that was so great. Uh, Rain Wilson, uh, member of the Baha'i Faith. 
was uh, kind enough to join the podcast and uh, hear him talk about how he connects his work. Yeah, it was just it was just great. And uh, like people always ask about that uh, as like one of the coolest people to meet. And you know, dude was great uh, off mic. He was super kind, humble, uh, like real low key. Like one of the things that I've kind of garnered over the years is an understanding that like many people who are big on stage like have to like turn it up for that and then off stage just like oh let's just be laid back and chill and um yeah that's what uh, definitely what my experience with him was like uh before and after that so uh good dude uh love to have him on and uh that was a lot of fun and uh <laughs> yeah one of the things i learned about like interacting with like comedians like like that is that uh, like they're professionals for a reason and uh, trying to keep up with them is a fool's errand and uh yeah just let them do their thing don't get in their way uh didn't know that one when i did that podcast but i'd definitely like to do that one again nevertheless anyway um one more thing one more clip and uh you know there are so many people that unfortunately didn't get included because only doing 12 clips like 12 clips jesus picked 12 disciples which means like there's a few people that didn't make it in like disciple 15 and 16 like probably still ticked about it like they they probably could have a good book deal if they would made it in but they didn't and it's real shame uh, like that's kind of an unfortunate joke because all the disciples kind of didn't end their life in a great way on the earth so just ignore that joke but a lot of people on the podcast that I would have liked to include and uh, th- that have been uh, just so much fun to get to talk to obviously there's 500 episodes 300 more after rain was on and so many people but obviously i couldn't not include my beloved suzanne stabile and the way that she's helped introduce the enneagram and she's been one of the main voices that have, has taught me so much the enneagram's helped uh, in so many different facets of my life and uh, i hope it has you as well and so this is uh, how we're going to wrap this up we're going to have suzanne talking about the enneagram i'm going to do the thing she, she hates doing this like going hey what is a one through nine like what do they all think about something this is uh, a, a thing she did talking about grief post-COVID. And I think COVID had an effect on each and every one of us in uh, in our own way. And uh, the way that she was able just to, to riff and talk about that was just super insightful. One of the many uh, pieces of wisdom that I've gleaned from her. And uh, I hope you enjoy this. And um, yeah, here Obviously, you've got a great, a lot of great content on it. So like to try to sum that up in a brief answer would be too much. But get, get us going in the right direction. Like how do we start acknowledging the suppressed grief that we have so it doesn't turn into depression, anxiety, or addiction. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to do is recommend a new book for me. Uh, and the book is Ambiguous Loss by mm-hmm. Pauline Boss. Her, her name, Pauline Boss. I uh-huh. like that. It even rhymes with the title of her book, Ambiguous Loss by yep. Pauline Boss. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because ambiguous loss uh, is the reality that we all have significant and meaningful loss from the last 18 months and we have more loss to come. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, thank you for not asking me to run through the numbers because you know how I hate to do that. Uh, But I'm going to do it in relationship to grieving. Okay. Um, First of all, to every single person who works in any denomination, in any church, anywhere, the church has done a terrible job of teaching her people how to grieve. A terrible job. And because I know that the inability to grieve leads to all of those 
things that Miriam Greenspan talks about. And then there's more to grieve and more to try to heal and put back together. I, I want to talk a little bit about each number and I'll try to be quick. So for ones, the reality of loss is um, met with guilt automatically. Ones are faced immediately with the things that they think they didn't do right or correctly in relationship to whatever's lost, if it's a job or a friend or a spouse or whatever. And so they begin to um, whip up on themselves with the help of the inner critic. Mm -hmm. And that creates anger. And the way ones intuitively manage anger is by uh, ordering things and putting things where they belong and making sure that all people are going by the rules and doing all of that. And so what happens with a one, if they're not able to stop and grieve, is they begin to reevaluate the situations and the people who did things wrong that caused their loss. And so it becomes an over-against stance rather than a giving in to the reality of imperfection in all of our lives and the fact that loss is part of the deal. Yeah. And you know that, that Joe talks a lot about the Paschal mystery, about living and dying and rising. Mm -hmm. and, and you've heard him talk about the fact that some churches are just all about rising, you know, and some are all about dying. And none of that fits. The, the Paschal mystery, the only pattern we have of living, dying, and rising happens all the time. But if you've been led to believe that if you do things correctly, there's not going to be any loss, which is what ones believe, and they try to do everything correctly, well, then what are they supposed to do with the fact that it didn't work? For twos, the... The question always is, am I feeling other people's feelings or am I feeling my own? Am I um, sad and can't name my own feelings? So I, I kind of scan for somebody I care about who's sad and then I can assign these feelings to that person or that event, which just puts me further and further and further away from my own grieving are from what I would have to grieve. And then to uh, soothe themselves by being helpful before and beyond request, which is messy. Mm -hmm. For threes, of course, there's surely a successful way to grieve. Grieving is uh, something that we're all supposed to do, and I've lost this or this or this person, and I need to do this well. And so what does that look like? And in our culture, it looks like a very quick recovery. It's mm -hmm. been a week now. It's time for you to get out. We'll pick you up for dinner. You know, I would hit you if you said that to me. <laughs> it's been a week. Good grief. Yeah. For fours, the danger is confusing bearing witness to pain with grieving. Say that again, please. For fours, the danger 
is that they can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. So it's very easy to name that grieving, but it isn't. It's bearing witness to pain. And oh, oh, I, that's so foreign, Matt. Bearing witness to pain yeah. is not the same as grieving. No. no. I mean, I knew that. I was just for my listeners yeah. who didn't. Yeah, no. So, so a four can be with you in your pain for an unending amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely gift that fours have. But, you know, uh, I was with a, a woman who I didn't know real well, but I knew her work and she knew mine. And we were uh, driving 40 minutes from one location to another appropriately for dinner. Not because we were entitled. Look, looking for your hamburger, hamburger steak. steak. And, uh, and by the way, I don't like it enough that I want anybody who hears this to set that up for me if I'm teaching in your church. Like, it's, don't, don't overthink that. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, people who know I drink tequila have given me tequila. Yes. We've got a lot of tequila. Yeah. Um, but I like Bitcoin. People, in case you're wondering. Oh, just, good. Interesting. Like you would. Bitcoin. You would. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so uh, she had just learned the Enneagram from me, and I talked about fours being able to bear witness to pain, and her husband's a four. And she said, you know, that, that is a gift, as you taught it. But she said, I got in a lot of trouble with depression, and my husband was just bearing witness. He didn't yeah. call anybody. He didn't challenge me. He didn't say I had to get help because he was bearing witness to my pain. That's not grieving. No. For fives, grieving is not a head trip. And, you know, one of the things that stands out there as uh, redemptive in a way, redemptive in the right use of the word for fives, Mm -hmm. is sharing who they really are, what they really feel with somebody, with one other person. Because they don't want to risk that. It feels like it's going to take so much energy that they don't have enough. And so nobody really knows them, which means they don't trust really being loved by somebody, which makes room for the reality that you're loved by more than one somebody. Mm. And... Grieving is an opportunity for fives to step into that space because it's not a head trip and you will not feel better with grieving until you do it. My mom and dad, my mom was a five and they were very close, uh, like Joe and I are. And uh, when my dad died, he died in September and my mom was with us in March for spring break. And I said to her, I don't, you're doing so well. I don't, I don't know how you're doing this. I would have my face buried in a pillow screaming. And she said, what makes you think I don't? And I didn't know the Enneagram then, but if I did, I would have said, because you didn't tell me. Because fives won't let us share that with them. Hmm. And, um, you know, as you said, you and Miriam, not grieving is really dangerous. Yeah. For sixes. I, you know, I, I work hard with the 
reality that there are two sides to everything. And sixes are the number on the Enneagram that are the most concerned about the common good. But when, when there's a pandemic, that means that they can be concerned about everybody else until they die in relationship to the common good and never deal with what is good for them personally. You know, we have to put culture and society and communities back together. And the fabric of those communities is still going to be made up of sixes because they're the people who don't leave communities or groups for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So as you and every other pastor and as every uh, community hospital uh, floor, as every um, organization that is a nonprofit, as all of these groups try to put their communities back together, the first people who are going to be willing to do whatever it takes to put the community back together are going to be sixes. And they're the ones that are going to stay. Mm -hmm. The question is, are you together as a six? Have you put yourself back together? That sounds very analogous to a two. Yes, but the reasons are different. Yeah. Motivation's different. So I'm, same, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I'm feeling other people's feelings and responding as I would. Sixes are aware that we have to be ready in an organized, assigned kind of way to make life work. So I bet you, and I'll, I'll just use our church. In our church, which I'm new to, but I'll let you know in six months whether or not I was right. The people who are at the table to say, let's do this. Let's try this for vacation Bible school. Let's do this. They're not saying, I, wanna, I want it to be the way it used to be. They're not complaining. They're saying, let's try this. Their focus is what's for the common good. Their focus is not somebody else's feelings. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. You know, I have a thousand things to say about sevens and grieving because of... Uh, I don't know. Joe and I just seem to pick up sevens. Your your foray into grief work was with a group of three sevens. Yes. Right? That's You've, exactly I've heard you say right. that before. You yeah. want me to talk about that? I don't want you to talk about grief and sevens too long because it'll make me sad. That means yes, I'm going to. <laughs> so, um, three male sevens came into our life at the same time asking or for help or obviously needing help. Um, one, two, one was our age, one was about 15 years younger than us, and one was our son, Joel. And <clears throat> what I learned, one of them uh, worked in the Dallas County Community College system, taught and was a librarian in that system, and he, I found out that he hadn't been to work in 40 days. And one was a pastor of a big steeple church, and he called and said, can y'all come? And it was not in our city, and he said, I'm in a lot of trouble. And our son Joel attempted suicide. And when I got to the bottom of what was happening with each of them, the reality was that because of the way they're put together, through no fault of their own, but through a lack of awareness, they made it to that point in life without having to grieve much. 
because they were able to rename or uh, reshape any sad thing that happened. So an example that's important is uh, we had basset hounds when the children were growing up and Maggie was Joel's favorite and we had to have Maggie put down because she couldn't stand up anymore. And Joel reframed that by being angry with Joe and me and saying that we killed her and that he could have taken care of her. So reframing doesn't always look like people think it looks. It's not, it's not fantasy. Reframing is, it could be this, and I can make it this. And when you come across the first thing as a seven that you can't reframe, then you have this whole backlog of things that haven't been grieved. And you have to deal with those at the same time. And even if you can't name those individually, those feelings are part of what you have to carry. And the problem is, you haven't practiced. You just haven't practiced. And so you're no good at it. And you don't want to do it anyway, so why would you step up for that? Why would you? And uh, you would because it's dangerous not to. Mm-hmm. And so my word is, it is more difficult for sevens to grieve than any other Enneagram member. And more important. Eights. As soon as eights recognize that vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness, then they'll be able to grieve. And until then, it's just going to be managing things so we can finish up and be done with this. Let's get this done and let's get it done right so we can finish up. Let's just wrap it up. And nines tend to erase themselves if they think they're taking up too much space. And grieving requires space. All right. That's it. That's the final clip I had for you. I want you to know, appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks for helping us get to 500 episodes. It's crazy to think that uh, eight and a half years ago, I just had this random idea, didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I stumbled into something that was uh, you know, deeply meaningful. And I'll be forever grateful for the way y'all supported the show. So thank you.